The views and opinions expressed on Reasonably Speaking are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of the American Law Institute or the speakers' organizations. The content presented in this broadcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. Please be advised that episodes of Reasonably Speaking explore complex and often sensitive legal topics and may contain mature content. I'm David Levy. I'm president of the American Law Institute and director of the Balch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School. And I'm here today with three of our finest judges uh, in, the, in the entire system. Uh, we, we have Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton, who is the chief judge of the Sixth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, the Federal Circuit. Uh, we have Judge Ray Loyer, who is a uh, judge on the Second Circuit uh, in, uh, with chambers in New York City. And we have former Chief Judge Diane Wood, who is a judge of the Seventh Circuit with chambers in Chicago. All three of you are members of the Council of the American Law Institute, and I've known all of you for many, many years uh, in different ways, going, some of us going way back in time, and um, you're all friends of mine, and I, um, I asked you to have a conversation today about judging and uh, the, the perception of the Supreme Court in particular because of the very troubling uh, poll numbers from the most recent Gallup poll about the loss of confidence by the American people in the, in the Supreme Court. And a lot of us are, are worried about this. I, I should say that the Supreme Court is not the only institution of government or in society that has uh, lost the confidence of the American people. The other two branches actually score much worse than the court. But there's been a, a somewhat sudden drop in the confidence ratings. Uh, the Gallup organization does this every year. And in June, uh, they, they did their survey. And the, uh, it should be noted that this survey uh, was done before the last uh, quite controversial cases came out uh, from, the, from the last term, including the abortion case, which we call Dobbs, and the New York gun case, uh, which we call Bruin. Uh, most of the drop is from respondents who identify as Democrats. Um, if we include the some confidence category, not just uh, the categories where they have um, complete confidence or almost complete confidence, uh, then almost 70% of Americans have at least some confidence in the Supreme Court. But nonetheless, there's been a significant drop in, in confidence in the two highest categories, that is uh, complete confidence or almost complete confidence. And that's, those numbers have fallen from 36% of respondents saying they have uh, quite a lot of confidence in the court to only 25%. And that's a big drop um, under uh, the way these polls are, are set up. I think it's fair to say that the court has, uh, you know, it's kind of in the middle of things right now. And it's received a lot of criticisms from uh, all sides of the political spectrum. I mean, from my point of view, uh, the court's been under fairly continuous attack uh, from conservatives, um, at least since the 1970s. 
Um, and it's um, now under fairly uh, continuous attack from uh, the left as well, from progressives. I would say that, that this began roughly in 2006 when Justice O'Connor retired, although it may have started earlier than that. And we see, you know, lots of critical writing. We have books um, from quite esteemed uh, legal commenters. <clears throat> One uh, from uh, Cass Sunstein called Radicals and Robes, Why Extreme Right-Wing Courts Are Wrong for America. And Linda Greenhouse, a very well-known writer for the New York Times, uh, has written a book called Justice on the Brink. Um, the Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett in 12 Months That tr Transformed the Supreme Court. And I think by on the brink, she doesn't mean like on the brink of something really terrific. <laughs> she means on the brink of, uh, you know, like going over the cliff. And even bef well before the decisions of the last term, uh, which were so consequential, there have been serious calls for, for court packing, for uh, jurisdiction stripping for other kinds of devices that would either limit the court or change its direction. Um, and again, I think it's fair to say that from whatever vantage point these critical assessments are launched, whether from the left or the right, uh, the basic point that the critics seem to, to make is that the court is a political, uh, perhaps even partisan uh, institution, and that it is um, making decisions on a host of pressing issues facing the country that, that ought to be left to the other branches, to the political branches. And this characterization of the court is, as being partisan or political um, is, is intended as a challenge to the court's uh, essential legitimacy, which is, you know, why should nine people have that kind of authority to make political decisions? Uh, they, they presumably have that authority to make legal decisions, but um, the, the critics would say that many of these decisions aren't, aren't legal. So with the three incredibly wise people here today, um, why don't we just start with, with why this is of concern? So, you know, the, the reality is that there's been a, a loss of confidence, at least on the, as revealed by the Gallup poll. Um, should that concern us? And uh, let's start with you, Jeff. Yes, David, uh, it's wonderful to be with you and Diane and Ray and um, looking forward to the conversation. Um, well, maybe a, a few uh, caveats about how much the poll numbers should concern us. I mean, I, I'm probably a little bit skeptical about looking at you know one set of data points. I, I think to the extent the court should be concerned about public support, public credibility, one year doesn't seem like a, a very good way to do it. Um, in fact, it seems much more likely to be used by the opponents of the decisions as opposed to people trying to assess, you know, whether the court is really performing like a court. So I'd probably start out with a little bit of skepticism about one set of data points. And then we have this other complication where the court sometimes is expected to do exactly what the public does not care for. I mean, you could imagine a a terrible case with uh, you know, a, a terrorist that kills some Americans and does something just awful. And the US Supreme Court lets them off because the police violated the Fourth or Fifth Amendment. And you know, that would be a setting in which the public would be understandably really agitated that 
this crime was not um, punished. But I think I think the four of us would agree that's that would not be a setting in which we would worry because we would say no. Um, that's exactly why we have a bill of rights. Sometimes uh, the federal courts are supposed to act in a counter-majoritarian way, which no surprise should sometimes leave the people uncomfortable um, with what's what's happening. So that I guess I'd pay a, be a little hesitant there. Um, I, I think the other thing that's problematic about um, paying too much attention to these poll numbers, and, and this is an area where I'm just not equipped to assess things because this we don't really get this inquiry, this kind of um, um, intense scrutiny at the Court of Appeals. I mean, when we have a really significant case, everybody knows it's very likely to go right to the Supreme Court. So the scrutiny at our level is quite temporary. But I guess the thing I wonder about, I don't know anything about, but I wonder about, I just wonder whether the court's really equipped to assess these kinds of things. I mean, they live in the real world, they read the papers, presumably they see these polls, but are they really in the same position as say a political party or an elected official to be responsive in these ways? And you know, even if today there might be quite a few Americans that would love all nine members of the court to look at these polls, look at what a majority of Americans want on this right or that right, and it would make a majority happy if they listened and complied and maybe changed their mind about some cases. We really have to wonder how that would work for the long haul. Um, so, and, and, and I guess the last thing I might, so maybe last two things I might say, um, you know, someone had told me 10 years ago, the court was gonna overrule Roe and Casey. I would have expected a pretty significant firestorm. It's not because I'm saying what the right answer is, but because it just happens to be an issue that really has divided Americans for a long time. And not just, um, you know, I feel a little bit this way or a little bit that way. A lot of people with very strong views about it. And we had a case with abortion, gun rights, and then, you know, you know, I guess you could call it under the umbrella of climate change, environmental law, the West Virginia case. Those are really consequential cases all in one term. So I suppose it's not surprising to get strong reactions um, by Americans in these polls. But, you know, the last thing we all know is, um, you know, I don't think the typical American understands exactly what the, a decision means. They know whether it came out their way, they might not know whether it means democracies can still vote on it in the case of Dobbs or in the case of Bruin, uh, you know, how many regulations the, the decision's really affecting. So there is that other problem we face of, you know, the Gallup poll is not, you know, it's not sophisticated academic scholars. Um, it's, it's presumably lots of lay people. So there's a little bit of, you know, concern about exactly how they're understanding the decisions. And I suppose that's the role of the courts going forward. Thank you. That's a very interesting answer. I, I take it uh, you don't have people on your front lawn uh, protesting your latest uh, decisions? Well, I, I, I give people lots of things to protest for sure. So you're right to wonder. Uh, but I do think the worse my decision, at least allegedly, the more likely it is that um, the court will look at it. So I, I take that to be the reason. Um, and I, I think we're really, all four of us, David, you were formerly a judge. I think all four of us 
it's a little easier to be a judge anonymously. And that is what we have. And that is what they definitively do not have right now. Ray, what, what's your thought on this? I, I, I think Jeff is saying we should take these numbers with a, a note of caution. I, I don't hear him to say that we shouldn't be concerned about a loss of confidence in, in the Supreme Court. But I, I don't think that was really your point, Jeff. But um, what's your take on this, Ray? Uh, yeah, so first of all, I just want to say thank you for this discussion about a very important topic. Um, and uh, I don't disagree at all with the caveats that Jeff mentioned about, for example, the counter-majoritarian role of the courts and also about uh, polls generally. Uh, but I, I, uh, I do worry. Um, and one reason that I worry, one reason that I think we should all worry about a loss of confidence and support, or even a reported loss in confidence and support, uh, is that, um, this is almost cliche, but we really have nothing other than public confidence to protect uh, the branch. Um, you know, you mentioned protests uh, in front of lawns. Um, you know, in my in a case that I had, the way that I found out that I had a Wikipedia page is that someone changed it in response to an opinion that I had written. Uh, and I get a call, got a call from the US Marshals saying, saying someone change your page to say, if you see him, namely me, arrest him on the spot. Um, and that's when I, um, early on in my judicial career, fully appreciated <laughs> uh, the, uh, the job. Uh, and the risks of the job. Um, although, uh, uh, as Jeff mentioned, you know, there, um, the, the lack of anonymity and the uh, level of vitriol that's directed at Supreme Court justices uh, these days um, does make it less appealing. But I also, I also think it's true of so many different um, public positions. Um, so, that all said, I do think that we should pay attention uh, when there's any indication of flagging confidence or support in the judiciary. Um, and I think what's important in my view, uh, but I know that some people disagree, is that there has to be a, at least the perception of some connection and our judicial appreciation that there must be a connection between the public and the court, between what the public expects, broadly speaking and how um, the Supreme Court and Courts of Appeals and the district courts rule um, and, and how uh, we justify or explain our rulings. Um, and any loss in confidence in what we do um, or what the Supreme Court does really makes the rule of law, again, in my view, uh, somewhat more vulnerable and detracts from the legitimacy of what um, we do. What I mean by that, at least in part, is that um, a lack uh, of confidence, um, and I've, I've heard other uh, judges in other countries talk about this, and I'll get to that in a second, but a lack of confidence, I think, increases the risk that actors, could be public actors, legislatures, um, certainly ordinary uh, people, are just over time going to ignore our orders and mandates, and they're going to do so as they perceive a lack of confidence or diminution or decrease in confidence and support in courts, uh, they're gonna do so um, thinking that there will be no practical uh, consequences. And that's always the, the worry. Um, it also increases the chances that 
uh, and I think this you alluded to this a little bit, uh, David, in your introductory remarks, that the public not only here but also abroad, uh, which I think is an important point, uh, are going to start to regard our judicial decisions not as a product of impartial deliberation based on the facts and law in a particular case, but as uh, in favor of or against a particular party or against a particular position and as essentially preordained based entirely on the composition of the decision makers. I can't tell you the number of times that people ask me, um, doesn't, isn't it entirely, that is our, the decisions of our court, let alone the Supreme Court, isn't that entirely the product of who's on the panel? And I protest and say no, but that is the perception and that is <laughs> deeply worrying to me. Um, and we'll get to some of the reasons why that's um, uh, based on a complete misperception at the Court of Appeals level of what we do and how we do it and how we uh, do our work. Uh, but that's very, very troubling. Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, I had the fortune of meeting a Chief Justice of what I would describe as a troubled democracy, uh, who spoke to a few federal judges here in New York City and described um, this phenomenon. Um, that I'm uh, worried about in a very powerful and very sobering way. And what he described is that is a series of repeated and unrebutted attacks from different sectors within the government in that country, especially the media and government actors uh, in that country that uh, simply over time cause a significant reduction in public confidence in the particularly the Supreme Court of that country um, and marginalized legal principles uh, and also marginalize the people within the country um, uh, at many levels, but certainly at the highest level, who believed in and were trying to foster a, um, uh, a belief in the rule of law. Uh, and that's, um, that's a problem. And as we were, the federal judges were listening to this chief justice, we were, <laughs> we were thinking about the fact that it's not an impossible future in the United States. It may be remote, I don't know, uh, but it is not impossible in the way that it was described. Um, and and the part of the problem is that when you have that loss of confidence in the court system, people resort to other means to resolve those matters that are properly or historically within the realm of the judiciary. Uh, and um, that's, that's problematic. Uh, let me just say one more thing. I think that there's sort of a bright side. Um, I don't think that the, the poll that you uh, mentioned, David, or the polls that I've seen um, have uh, picked up on any decrease in confidence in the judiciary among members of the bar, <laughs> among the attorney class. And I think that that's pretty important. That was not true, by the way, in the, the troubled democracy that the chief justice of that country described. Uh, and I, I do think that if that ever begins to happen, that is a a decrease in confidence among the members of the bar in the pronouncements of the Supreme Court or um, of uh, the lower courts uh, or in, in state court um, rulings, uh, then we have a truly significant problem. Um, so I'll, I'll end there. That's so well stated. Diane. Well, thank you. Uh, I what a, what a treat to be with this group of people to talk about such an important issue. I, I wanted to go back and, and ask why, because I am 
troubled by these polls. I take Jeff's point that you know one poll here, a poll there could miss uh, a lot of, of nuance. But the first question that I asked myself is, you know, these are public polls. And so where is the public learning about the court? We are in rare air of the people in this, this conversation. And we think of theories of interpretation and we think of court opinions and we think of scholarly articles. That's not where the public as a whole learns about the Supreme Court. I would say the primary place they learn about the Supreme Court is in the confirmation process. And the confirmation process is portrayed in the press at least as this grand fight between camp A and camp B, between liberals and conservatives and you know who's gonna get this preordained result and who's gonna get some other preordained result. And then you pile on something such as you know a decision by the Senate not to move forward on a vote with Merrick Garland, and then a decision by the Senate in a much tighter time frame to move ahead aggressively with a vote on Amy Coney Barrett, my former colleague. And they're both terrifically well qualified to be on the Supreme Court, and I'm not complaining about anybody's membership of the court, but the public at large is told that this is a big partisan fight. And so somebody, quote, wins and somebody, quote, loses as a result of that. And that's a shame, but it seems to me that, and, and believe me, I have no way how to do this, but if we could somehow dial down the temperature on the confirmation process and begin to think that we really are looking for people who are going to be what I'm going to define as a good judge, and especially people who are likely to sit in the court for 30 years, 35 years, 40 years. Who among us has any idea what the hot issues of the day are going to be 20 years from now? I certainly don't claim that crystal ball. So, you, you know, you need the good judge. And I don't think the public is learning about the court in a way that's very useful to building confidence in the court and realizing that there are some issues that are proper for the court to be the final word on. So what are those issues? Well, I, I would take us all the way back at a minimum to the 1920s, 100 years ago at this point, uh, thinking of David's opening remarks, to legal realism. As soon as you began to get this idea afoot that you know I'm going to rule in a case because I'm in a good mood that day, or because I like somebody, or the, they have a nice shade of blue on their brief, you know, or something, people confuse judicial independence with judicial whim, and and there really is a tremendous difference between those two things. Judicial independence means you're not afraid somebody's going to fire you or cut your salary or you know, threaten your life or, or whatever because of the opinions that you've come out with. Judicial whim is the antithesis of the rule of law. You know, we're all trying to do the best we can. And the effort of building back from judicial realism and saying, actually, no, I mean, there are constraints on judges and judges to an astonishing degree in this country, at least, observe those restraints. You know, people may have their favorite canons of construction for statutes or for the Constitution. They may have either stronger or maybe somewhat more 
qualified views of stare decisis, but we have doctrines that keep us in check, so to speak. And for that, I would actually say we there's a lot to learn from the experience of the courts of appeals, because the courts of appeals do have those nine people in Washington kind of looking over our shoulder. And we sit on, I sit on panels every day with people appointed by a great variety of presidents, you know, from all the way back in terms of some of our senior judges to Ronald Reagan, up to and including President Biden. Four people were appointed by President Trump. I mean, on, on and on. In 97% of the cases, we have no trouble coming to an agreed disposition. Sometimes there's some negotiation. Do you want to take a broad view or maybe do you need to drill in and take a narrow view? But this is rules of law that are persuading those members of the panel. And it's actually very reassuring to me that the law is real, that it guides us. Sometimes you may not be particularly happy with an outcome at some gut level, but if that's what the law says it has to be, that's what the law says it has to be. We can all pick the 3% that aren't there. It's the abortion cases, it's guns, it's, you know, the, the tough ones that used to be the death penalty. And actually in the Seventh Circuit, we wind up involved in every federal death case because death row is in Indiana. So people find some way of bringing the case to us. But sure, those are hard cases. And as Jeff said, vis-a-vis -vis abortion, but I would say on these other points too, many people have sincerely held strong views on one side or the other of these issues. Guns, certainly the same thing. Uh, some people see this as just integral to their ability to defend themselves and their families. Other people just see slaughter in the cities. Uh, and I'm not sure how you bridge those gaps, but surely you begin by respecting the fact that these are very difficult issues and that people of good faith are going to come out differently on them. So one other point I wanna make, which again, I think this is the system we have, but we need to understand its weaknesses. And that is the cert power. Um, I think any of us, if given a pool of 6,000 cases and told, pick out the 60 hardest cases, most consequential that you can find and give those your attention, of course, there are going to be cases that have politics in them, that have policy in them, that have all sorts of dimensions. And a court is going to have to find some way of objectifying them. I'm not sure how you do it, but at the court of appeals level where we have mandatory jurisdiction, you don't have that selection issue, but you do have it when you have the cert power in the court for better or for worse, we have asked this institution of nine human beings to somehow cope with these extraordinarily eventful and consequential cases. And it's a little unfair of us then to turn around and say, oh, and, you know, now you're being partisan because we've asked them to do exactly that. We've asked them to take these, these extraordinarily difficult cases. And my only suggestions or my, my wish, I suppose, would be that when opinions are being written, there is a sophisticated audience 
shorten them, make them shorter, make it clear what principles are being used. Don't go into name calling, probably don't even go into 20 page, you know, digressions into history. I'm not sure that's helping that much. I think clear rules of interpretation where a judge can plausibly say, this is the way I understand the law. This is how I got to where I need to be might be of some help in pulling back from from uh, the little p politics view. I will say, you know, it's a little troublesome even right now. I pick up the paper, this is my last point for the moment, uh, pick up the paper and see people discussing quite openly uh, some latter-day version of massive resistance to some of the court's recent opinions. And I at least bemoaned the, that phenomenon in the 1950s and 1960s, because if the court, whether it's school prayer or whether it's uh, racial integration, was just told, look, society's just not going to follow what you did, we have badly weakened the institution. And I hope that is not the reaction of this recent bout of cases that we've had, but I'm a little concerned that it might be. Well, thank you. you you've all opened up the, the a ton of issues and we're gonna we're gonna cover them and I think many of them not not all of them I I think Diane just listening to you and you know it, one thing I don't think the public uh, really understands is that in addition to the courts of appeals judges you know usually agreeing with one another uh, to the point where uh, at least in some of the circuits it's not even deemed necessary to hold oral argument. Uh, because the case is, is just so one-sided, it's not not even fair to the parties in a way um, to impose more expense on them when the judges are quite convinced of how they're going to decide it, and they're all unanimous. Uh, the court is often unanimous and often decides these cases um, by lopsided margins that that um, cross lines, and that's been true for a very long time. So, we, I mean, even on the Supreme Court, out of those 60-odd cases, you know, maybe each year there are 10 or, or so that are going to cause a lot of consternation. But the majority of them, particularly in the technical areas, uh, the judges are quite constrained and do tend to do tend to agree. It's also true that there are a lot of bad actors out there trying to convince the American people that they're their judges and the, not just their Supreme Court judges, but their, the, the, all judges are essentially on the take, uh, that they are beholden to certain interests and that the system is fundamentally and always has been fundamentally unfair. And a lot of this is coming from foreign powers, um, uh, enemies of the United States who are trying to undermine American democracy. And I, I think that's you know one of the long range goals of uh, the Russian Empire, I'll put it that way, is to undermine Americans' faith in their democracy. And this has been um, this has been shown that many of the harshest voices that are on social media these days are actually not real people. They are um, government operatives from um, the former Soviet Union. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, your last point is so interesting, too, which, which is to understand that the American legal system asks our lawyers and judges, and, and to some extent our citizens as well, to bring many of our 
public policy disputes into the into the legal system. Our our legal system in the United States is a place where we do hash out many many social problems, and it's not a given that that would have to be the case because it's not the way lawyers and judges tend to hear cases. For example, in England or Great Britain, but it is has been our tradition, and, and it partly reflects Americans' uh, sort of distrust of administrative agencies, and may, there are probably many other factors involved here. The whole public interest movement in the in the law, which is a very old and old thing now, it's not not n- nothing new, but is to use the legal system to affect social change, and and that's that's part of our landscape. Uh, some people are comfortable with it. Some people are not comfortable with it. But it's certainly part of our, it's it's certainly part of our system. So you know, as you say, to turn around and criticize judges for ruling on matters that have been brought to them, uh, and which consistently get brought to them, uh, that are of national importance and where the um, where the law may be unclear or undeveloped, um, it's not 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 really fair. On the other hand, you know, Jeff and I both clerked for Justice Powell, and there are different kinds of judges. For, uh, my experience of Justice Powell, uh, maybe yours was, was different, Jeff, but I doubt it, was that I never knew how he was going to rule. And the reason I didn't know is that he didn't know. <laughs> and I still remember on a very important immigration case, Plyler versus Doe, uh, he called me the morning of oral argument. Um, it was, uh, we used to, the two of us got in very early. It was like 6.30 in the morning. He said, David, come talk to me. <laughs> and he, he literally was just in agony, just did not know how he was going to decide that case. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, the way, you know, that's sort of my model of a good judge is somebody who doesn't, doesn't know everything. Well, getting back to the three of you, because you're, you're all on the Court of Appeals and uh, Courts of Appeals, and we've talked about this, you know, really uh, in a way, but are you affect? do you feel like you are affected? Uh, you know, when the Supreme Court is in the crosshairs and the public has less confidence in the court, do you think that affects the stature of the of the and 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 the in the in the not not just because people admire you, but because people accept the rulings and they understand uh, what it is that you're trying to do. But on on other courts, not just federal, but state courts as well, since the Supreme Court attracts so much attention. Um, does anybody feel that this is somehow a threat to the entire uh, legal system? Ray, I see you. Yeah, I think that there's what I would describe as a trickle-down effect <laughs> uh, to the entire federal judiciary and perhaps even state courts. Um, I'm less sure about that. Uh, and just to pick up on something that Diane said, you know, the level of civic education about what it is that we do is such that most people don't distinguish between different court systems. Uh, they just hear the term judge or federal judge and they have a general impression uh, that's, um, that applies to all uh, judicial decision-making. Most, many people, uh, and I agree with Diane, um, uh, a lot of what they see is the confirmation process and the top line divided decisions of the Supreme Court because that's what the media picks up on. Um, there are very rarely are there cases or, or media reports about circuit court decisions that don't ultimately, you know, um, make it up to the uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, 
And there's no news about unanimous decisions, um, either uh, certainly not um, with respect to Supreme Court decisions, uh, but definitely not uh, with, uh, with our uh, courts uh, uh, and immediate uh, courts of appeals. And so I think that there is, uh, you know, I, I don't think that the courts of appeals uh, or for that matter, district court judges are immune to the sorts of uh, losses of, in, in public confidence that, that we're describing, we're discussing. Um, I, I will say that, and I think that we're gonna talk about this a little bit later on, uh, but when the Supreme Court, uh, as a result of its uh, certiorari power, uh, is able to reduce its docket to 65 or so decisions uh, that on the merits that it now issues, so much more attention. <laughs> then gets pay, paid to each one of those decisions. You know, Diane and Jeff and I uh, are dealing with each probably the hundreds of decisions on the merits and our courts are dealing with uh, thousands uh, at some point. And so in one, there, the, the decisions with great respect for the individual litigants in each decisions are like pebbles thrown into the ocean, right? Um, by contrast, each one of the Supreme Court's decisions has this seismic or is perceived to have this seismic effect because there, there are so few decisions that come out. Uh, and again, the press and others don't uh, focus on the, um, the unanimous decisions on, as you put it, David, technical, more or less technical issues uh, for the most part. They focus on the uh, decisions uh, that are sharply divided or that uh, show the court as, as sharply divided. And that all literally, that view trickles down to the judiciary, to the rest of the judiciary. Um, uh, I think that forms of civic edu education would help ameliorate that um, misperception. Uh, that is the perception that we're, that the courts of appeals uh, which, as Diane said, um, uh, I guess on the Seventh Circuit, Diane, it's 97% unanimity rate. On the Second Circuit, it's something like 98%, um, you know, very high level of unanimity, uh, notwithstanding, uh, you know, differences in terms of the appointing authority ranging um, in the Second Circuit's case from Carter, uh, from President Carter to President Biden, um, uh, and everyone in between. Uh, and that is just not a story that's told. That is not a story that's told. And that's partly, I think, our fault uh, as judges, partly uh, the fault of different actors uh, within our country. Um, uh, and, but that's something that I think needs to be corrected and rectified uh, and improved. Yeah, I'm gonna turn to Jeff now. Jeff, um, in terms of telling stories, you have been telling the story of the state constitutions, and you've done it incredibly well. I, I, I'm just in awe of what you've been able to accomplish here in the past few years. You've written two really wonderful books on state constitutions. And um, one of your points, I think, that you tried, you've tried to make is that these constitutions and the state Supreme Courts that are interpreting them can be uh, very helpful to the US Supreme Court and um, take some of the pressure off of that court to be the sole decision maker on some of these 
very, very difficult issues. Um, can you can you talk to us about that um, in our current circumstance? Yeah, I, I do. I do think the states. You know, we think of uh, federalism or uh, the pejorative states' rights as having lots of negative stories in American history, and you know, justifiably so. What can you say? Uh, whether it's slavery, Jim Crow, but I do wonder if at this moment in American history, federalism might offer some opportunities. I mean, it still creates the problem that if you allow fifty states to go their own way, they may experiment in very unsavory ways, but it is a very big country with 330 million people. And you do wonder whether federalism could help us here. You know, you know, it's so hard to find anything in law or policy these days on which most Americans still agree. But I think, I think we still embrace Justice Brandeis's insight that if you have a tricky policy problem, it's not always a good idea to have the national government experiment when you just don't know how it's gonna play out. And sometimes it's a good idea to let state legislatures uh, do the experimenting, let a brave state try this or that. If it's a good idea, winning insight, other state legislatures can embrace it. Well, as I indicated, Brandeis is referring to state legislatures as the laboratories of experimentation, but the insight, it seems to me, also applies to state courts. I mean, the key point Brandeis is making is sometimes, not always, there are emergencies, but sometimes it's a good idea to have a ground up development of policy. Um, this of course is very like the common law. The common law is very ground up state by state. So it's not unfamiliar to judges, law or courts in general. I do wonder with constitutional, and I'll focus on constitutional experimentation. I think that's where we get the greatest divisions. That's the 3% Diane is talking about, the five, four, six, three decisions at the US Supreme Court. My court might be more like 10% of them have divisions, but I think it's those cases, in, at least in constitutional law, where um, take substantive due process, where you know it's really hard to get your arms around exactly what it's required, or you know, fairly general guarantees. You know, what processes do procedurally is a search unreasonable. And I do wonder whether our impatience to get it right from our perspective as individuals and nationalize what seems to be the best solution sometimes gets the best of us, that um, we might come up with better insights if we allowed for the 50 state courts construing these exact same general guarantees and, you know, potentially federal courts, but let's stick with the state courts for now and, uh, you know, maybe be a little patient. Uh, patient. I mean, we, we would not think it unusual for Congress to wait a while to nationalize some approach to the opioid crisis based on experimentation at the states. Um, why shouldn't we think that if the U.S. Supreme Court is going to you know, let's face it, if it's substantive due process, it's always fairly inventive. And if it's a creative approach to another guarantee, again, fairly inventive. So the court is kind of at the outer edges of its power. And is that not a good time to wait from input from other sources? You know, if you're a pragmatist like our former boss, Justice Powell, show that it worked on the ground. I mean, show that it, show that this idea actually made progress on the ground didn't make things worse. Um, for the, you know, the people that see constitutional norms as evolving, 
What better ev evidence of evolving norms than what state courts have done, or for that matter, state legislatures, state constitutional amendments? And for those judges who are pretty focused on the fixed original meaning, state courts can be really helpful there. So, you know, my, my thinking is that that could help us. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll flip it and explain why I think the U.S. Supreme Court, while it's been the lead innovator in con law for the last hundred years, why I'm skeptical that it can stay as the lead innovator. And David, you were on the Biden Commission in terms of dealing with this question of you know, term limits or other approaches to the size of the court. There are really three things that when you combine them together, they're unprecedented in world history. And it strikes me they're just not sustainable over the long haul. And the three things that go together are that the US Supreme Court has exercise judicial review in a fairly muscular way, certainly over the last hundred years. And I would say it's hard to find a country that exercises judicial review in the same way our federal US Supreme Court does. And what I mean by that is invalidating de democratically enacted laws or invalidating executive branch orders by elected officials. So thing one is we exercise it conspicuously Thing two, we're interpreting a document that requires three quarters of the states to amend. In other words, anything remotely controversial, it can't be corrected. And I don't think there's a democracy out there that combines those two features, uses judicial review a lot, and then reviews a document that's hard to correct. And then the third tree, third leg of the stool, if you will, is that they all have life tenure. Those three things cannot go together for the next hundred years. I, I'm very comfortable making that prediction. Now, let me contrast that with the states and why the states are a really great vehicle for experimentation. I don't want to ex end experimentation. I just want to do it in a sustainable way. They don't have a single one of these problems. Uh, they have not exercised judicial review as much, but let's put that to the side. The key thing is every one of their documents can be amended by kind of you know, 51 to 60% votes. Um, almost all of them report to the electorate at some point. In other words, there's some ability to respond to who the judges are. So it's, I feel like we've got this flipped. Uh, the, the, the judges that ought to have be in the vanguard of experimentation are the state court judges because those are the ones that the people can respond to most quickly if they're getting too far ahead of themselves. They provide wonderful information for the federal courts and especially the US Supreme Court when it decides to innovate a new right. Um, listen, I'm not, it's not lost on me, the problem of relying exclusively on state court judges and that is by no means what I think we should do. But I do think there ought to be more of a dialogue and I think it would be ultimately very helpful to both sets of court systems. You know, it occurs to me that, that uh these last couple of cases, you know, that I, I don't know whether they challenge your theory or they illustrate your theory. I mean, in, in, in Dobbs, you have the court actually sort of throwing the issue back to the, to the states and maybe to the state Supreme Courts because they're gonna get, um, as you point out in one of your books, the, the, they have not been ruling on a constitutional right to abortion under their own state constitutions over the since uh, Roe was decided, it's it's unusual that they they take a case, um, but now they'll they will get cases, and and I 
I, I don't suppose it's easy to predict how that's going to go, but it'll become a, it's going to become something significant, I, I, I would expect. Um, and then in, in, in Bruin, you have, in a way, the reverse point, which is now the court's taken this off the table and, and something that, you know, I'll, I can't ask this, any of you to be at all critical, but I'll be somewhat critical here. Um, you know, an issue of, of, uh, that involves guns in a country that is so different in different locations, you know, the um, access to police resources and um, the, just the environmental threats that you might have in, in a remote location in Wyoming are going to be very diff different than what you find in a highly urbanized area. And, you know, that might have been something where legislatures and even courts would say, you know, are we come to different views on this because, because the circumstances are so different. Um, but that's not going to happen now, um, at least, you know, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, and I, I think that's, um, you know, from my point of view, that's, that's too bad. Uh, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I, it, maybe there'll be a test of your theory here. I, I'm not, I'm, you know, the abortion cases are so unique that I don't think it, it's maybe not a, an ex, it's maybe not your ideal experiment for testing the kind of the sudden view that, that the state, state court litigation around the country can generate consensus over time. But maybe it can, I don't know. Well, I, I mean, though, I, who knows? I mean, it's clearly an educational moment to appreciate um, something I think a lot of Americans didn't appreciate, which is that they do have two shots at protecting a right to abortion, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a valuable thing for people to know. Obviously the people of Kansas know it um, and, you know, you know, the one thing in this area, maybe, maybe it's too, maybe it's too difficult. It's too fraught. Um, but it is possible that it's an area that will lead to compromise at the legislative level. I'm not sure I assume it's all going to be about state courts. Um, you know, it's amazing. There's never been a state constitutional amendment to protect a right to abortion or a right to choose, however one wishes to phrase it. And now we've got several on the ballot uh, this fall. I mean, that that's, that's kind of interesting by itself that the people are realizing there's a way to take something we care about. If we want to constitutionalize it, we can. Uh, I think you're right. It's very dangerous to predict. And, you know, in Bruin, you, you know, my sensitivities are similar to yours in that it does seem strange to me to take something, I, I would say it with both issues and have just one rule. It's just such a diverse country, but guns are a great illustration. I and, mean, you know, rural Wyoming versus New York City it's hard to imagine we wouldn't have different sets of rules. And, uh, you know, the key fit question with Bruin is, and combined with Heller and McDonald is, you know, how much is it limiting experimentation? And that, I don't think, I don't think that story has been told yet. Um, you know, I, I can see people being concerned, but I think there, you know, I would say based on the holdings so far, there is plenty of room for local experimentation, uh, but, you know, time will tell. Uh, so, Ray, you gave this wonderful lecture some years ago, the Levine Lecture at uh, Fordham, and you talk about the Courts of Appeal as being kind of the, the middle child. I'm, I'm a middle child myself, so it, it resonates <laughs> with me, but you say, you know, you've got, so the Diane, apparently. <laughs> you got the Supreme Court on one side, that's like your older 
your older sibling who thinks that uh, the world revolves around them. And then you got the district court on the other side and uh, they also feel that way pretty much. They're the baby of the family and entitled to a lot of deference. <laughs> and of course they have a lot of discretion. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a very lively, interesting talk. I, you know, it, I, I'd like to ask you, you know, Jeff thinks that maybe the, the state Supreme Courts can take some of the pressure off of the, the U.S. court, um, the Supreme Court. But I, I don't know if we think that the circuit courts can take some of that pressure off the court. Is there, is there a way in which they can, uh, you know, not just be a way station on the way to the decision, but actually uh, help to, uh, to kind of educate the public and, and maybe dissipate some of the uh, division uh, that we get on some of these issues so that people at least more thoroughly understand them? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. The courts of appeals, uh, the federal courts of appeals were uh, created in part to take pressure, but it's another form of pressure off of the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court was overwhelmed uh, after the Civil War by a very congested docket. And so we were created to um, significantly reduce its docket. And then of course, as Diane uh, mentioned earlier in the 1920s, that, that, that all important cert power uh, was introduced to take further pressure off. And prior to that, as I mentioned um, in that lecture, uh, David, um, there had been a, a pretty active certification process uh, whereby courts of appeals, different regional courts of appeals could certify specific questions. There might've been a limit uh, to the Supreme Court that in effect, the Supreme Court had to um, take. And I thought that that was important. I think it was um, uh, Jeff who mentioned dialogue between uh, the courts, the state courts, uh, and the federal courts. Um, uh, and I think that if you have a certification process of the type, by the way, that we've got with our state court counterparts in, in I think just about every state now, um, that would be very helpful um, if we could certify, if we could resume this tradition of certifying at least one or two questions that uh, the members of the active members say of the court of appeals in each region uh, thought were not only very important, but particularly vexing for them. I think that there's a growing disc, I shouldn't say, I, should, <laughs> I try not to be overly critical, but I think that there's sometimes at least the perception of a disconnect. We're talking about a disconnect between the public and what Supreme Court uh, does. Sometimes a disconnect between what the Court of Appeals, uh, the Courts of Appeals do around the country and what the Supreme Court uh, does. What the Courts of Appeals think are important issues <laughs> many areas, technical issues. And we see these um, circuit splits, uh, and, but they, uh, they're prolonged. They're not resolved uh, by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court takes other cases as uh, is its prerogative. Um, but if we had uh, a way to, um, uh, in a more formal, with a more formal procedure, telegraph or tell the Supreme Court, these are the issues that we're grappling with uh, that are very vexing, uh, that um, uh, would be very helpful for you to resolve and to nationalize. That'd be, that, that would be uh, supremely helpful. I also think that volume helps turn down the temperature. 
Um, so I mentioned earlier that uh, when Supreme Court takes on uh, only 65 or so uh, merits cases, as opposed to when you're clerking for just Justice Powell, it must have been about 150 cases. So there's been a substantial uh, reduction in the number of cases that the Supreme Court uh, takes on um, on the merits. That I I think that that um, becomes problematic for the Supreme Court, frankly, because um, every case uh, in every case you've got um, a huge amount of attention. Uh, all of the uh, energy of interested parties um, of the justices is focused on um, very, very few set of issues. Um, and I think that that's, that's, a, that's a problem. Now, the courts of appeals, uh, we uh, must take on uh, appeals from final order. So we're in a very different uh, situation. Um, and I think that we are much better positioned, frankly, to uh, adopt very, a very incrementalist approach in our decision-making, because we've got a set of facts, we've got a set of legal principles, and we try to resolve those. If we were swinging for the fences in every case, uh, we would not be able to get our jobs done. Uh, and that's also part of the theme of um, that, that lecture. Um, but reintroducing certification cases um, trying to get more media attention on the level of unanimity that exists at the Court of Appeals, um, and, and not just media attention, but sort of civic attention to the fact that um, all the vast majority of our cases at the Court of Appeals level uh, are decided uh, unanimously, notwithstanding differences, again, in background uh, and views. I think that 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 would be very helpful for the public to know. Um, and that's some, a story that's not told um, in much the same way that you know, I think the public doesn't, uh, as a general matter, really uh, fully appreciate the role of the state courts, um, the role of the courts of appeals as the seminal, the glue that binds everything is it's a story that's not told. You know, my, I, I told the story that Jeff has heard that is not apocryphal of my cousin when he found out that I had been nominated slash appointed, he didn't care, to the Second Circuit. Um, he said, congratulations. Um, when do you think you'll be able to graduate up to the First Circuit? <laughs> so there's no, no, uh, no sense of what it is that I do. He understands what the Supreme Court does. Is, it, is the certification process either as it used to be or as it would be, but does that require action by the entire court? I think that that, yeah, that required an action by the entire court. And there is still actually one of my colleagues who read that lecture pointed out that that is still a, um, that is still a, a statutory possibility. It's just not really given the uh, total cert power uh, of the Supreme Court. What would, might be interesting is if it became a, a sort of the way in which uh, Appellate judges, court of appeals judges, could communicate to the court that they that this is these are the these are the cases that should be taken. Might it um, provide a a little bit of pushback on the tendency which we now see, uh, which is to write these extreme dissents, which seem to be directed entirely at the Supreme Court? Yes. Um, yes. 
so so a <laughs> that's an excellent uh, point, uh, David. Uh, that I'm glad you made, so I could follow up on it. <laughs> um, you know, now in order to draw the attention of the Supreme Court, you've got to use language and write these dissents, or uh, in one of my cases, a what I what was described. Uh, I apparently wrote a concurrel uh, to get the to get the attention of the Supreme Court, and. I talked about um, taking down the temperature, a certification process that required, you know, a, a majority, say, of uh, active judges to um, decide these are the, this is the issue or case that we want to certify up the Supreme Court that would eliminate this language, this, you know, pick me uh, type of um, dissentals or concurrals that I think have that I think are, are not not great, not ideal vehicles to get the uh, Supreme Court's attention. So I'm gonna shift to Diane. We're in a, a period here where I think the, the, the lay public would be surprised uh, and, and I'll put myself with the lay public as I'm, I'm surprised too, that so much of legal, uh, so much of, of the debate about constitutional law and constitutional interpretation over the past oh, 30 years or so has been uh, in these competing camps of, of methodology of how to interpret the constitution. And so uh, we have living constitutionalism, we have originalism, we have textualism. There are apparently 13 to 15 different kinds of living constitutional theory and um, and judges and academics have have developed these theories, and uh, sometimes it is said that it's important for a judge to decide where they fall and and to pick one of these methodologies and to stick with it through thick and thin, um, because that is that is constraining. In your Madison lecture, you say both courts and society would be stronger if we stopped arguing over the interpretive conventions of so-called original intent versus purposive or dynamic interpretation and focused instead on content. This does not mean that courts should or could legitimately ignore the constitutional text. Far from it, the text will always be the proper starting point. It does mean, however, that we should understand both the words in the text and the structure of the constitutional system at a high level of generality, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd I'd like to hear your your views on this, uh, sort of as as they may relate to you know the, the what we're here for, which is to talk about the court, uh, the, the court stature, um, and I, I think one of the questions for um, I, I take this to be an an eloquent. Um, defense of, of some form of living constitutionalism with some textualism thrown in. Um, <laughs> it may be a little even more subtle than that. But, um, you know, one of the concerns about living constitutionalism is that if it's alive, then it can kind of go in a lot of different directions and that, that those directions may be determined by the judge's own predilections and less by uh, what the American people thought when they ratified the when they ratified the document. So, what are your thoughts about that? Sure, thank you. I mean, I started from the proposition that 
the people who wrote the Constitution, and I'll include those who've written the rather small number of amendments that we have to the Constitution, were intelligent people who knew what they were doing and who meant what they were saying. So that's where I say, of course, you're going to start with the text. But if the text says, if, if the text you're worried about says, in order to be the president, you have to be 35 years old, I have never in my life heard any big debate about what it means to be 35 years old. We haven't gone back to the Chinese system of giving you a year while you're in utero. We haven't, I mean, it's just 35. And so, of course, you follow that. No titles of nobility, fine. I mean, we're, that's a little fuzzier, but we've all understood what that meant. But we have other provisions of the Constitution where if you want to think of like rules versus standards, the people who wrote the document gave us very broad instruction, no cruel and unusual punishments, due process, equal protection. So I would say if the constitutional text that we're starting with happens to be one of those standards, one of those much broader base things, then the people who wrote it themselves would have expected those standards to be applied in the contemporary world where the question arose. And they would not have thought um, that you had to always, you know, excavate history in whatever year you want, 1787, 1787-1791-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1868-1
the Affordable Care Act case came perilously close to taking close to 20% of the gross national product uh, out of the legislative arena, I think that would have been very unfortunate. I think it's much better in the democratic process. If you don't like the statute, elect people who will repeal it would be the answer. But back to the Constitution, I really think um, we can follow the constitutional text and still have flexibility where it's needed and not flexibility where the people who wrote the Constitution meant what they said. And I don't think you've got to be completely, you know, you don't have to read the Second Amendment to apply only to uh, blunderbusses, you know, that were available in 1791. I mean, you could be a little sensible. Post offices and post roads. All right, you know, we, we have some idea what that means, immigration. But there are a lot of provisions of the Constitution that I think give room for contemporary applications rooted in the law that's developed around the clause. How do you, um, how do you, how do you assess this, um, this sense that that we have these different methodologies and that judges just have to elect one or the other? Um, I think you've you've confused it a little bit by saying you can be eclectic depending on the nature of the text. Well. Right. So, so here, here's the evil that I hope we can avoid. And that's opportunistic behavior. And I don't mean to be too crazy about this, but I will give the example that comes to my mind. Um, there was a period in the 1960s, uh, when some of the whatever you want to call them, liberty or substantive due process cases were being decided, where you saw some members of the Supreme Court talking about the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment, and they used the term penumbra, which has become widely derided as, as not a very useful concept. And what's this penumbra thing? Uh, what are the emanations from, from these constitutional provisions? I'm actually quite sympathetic to that criticism. I don't know what the outer limits are. But then later on, you get these cases about the 11th Amendment and you read members of the Supreme Court saying, well, actually the 11th Amendment doesn't say a word about state sovereignty. It's a jurisdictional um, provision about what the courts can hear or not hear. But the overall, you know, general meaning, the aura of the 11th Amendment is a state sovereignty protection. And I look at those and I say, the court loses legitimacy when it sort of picks whichever convention will serve for the desired result in the case. So I don't mind a certain amount of consistency. If you think, you know, you want very literal interpretation, you know, maybe you strike down the administrative state because Article 2 doesn't say anything about it, you know, or maybe you think that's too much weight for the necessary and proper clause to carry. It's just when you, when you're a textualist, when that serves your end, and when you're not a textualist, when that doesn't seem to lead to the result you want, I have trouble with that. It seems to me, then you're not really a textualist, you're just doing sort of an ad hoc uh, assessment of, of the provision in mind. But I don't really want, I mean, the way I would look at it anyway, there's no rigid uh, set of interpretive canons. And I think the canons themselves 
are rightly criticized for either being strong canons or weak canons, or sometimes they're used and sometimes they aren't. And, and so I, I'm just not sure other than as an after the fact description of what you've done, they're all that useful. The, um, that's very helpful. And I think, uh, I think what we, we want to avoid is we, we don't want to get to the point where the methodologies are so constraining yeah and that a robot could do your job you know you just sort of say like okay well we have an original intention robot over here we have a textualist over here we have a living constitutionalist over here and they are so predictable uh given the kinds of issues that we see now um that we all know how this person is going to vote that that is that's kind of a form of judging I, when i say vote i, I mean decide that I, I'm sure none of us subscribe to, and yet it's 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 hard when you see these stable voting blocks on the controversial cases, not to be at least for me not to be uneasy about it because you think, go ahead, David. So I do think that we've seen some Supreme Court decisions uh, in the Title VII area and a few other areas where a justice uh, is able to say, look, I disagree. And it's clear that the justice disagrees with the result as a policy matter, uh, but then goes on to describe how a particular methodology, say you are a strict textualist, and I'm thinking of uh, Justice Gorsuch in a particular case, uh, but the, stat the text of the statute uh, requires this result. Uh, and I think that what Diane is saying is that uh, you, you will also see uh, other judges, uh, justices, who are known to embrace a particular methodology, and but they dissent because you sense that uh, they are uncomfortable with the result, and they're um, a little bit more prepared to uh, pick another methodology, <laughs> and that's that is the, I guess, frustration, the concern. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think flexibility is the byword. Uh, we're all, three of us are very practical people. Um, uh, all of us are very practical people. Uh, and uh, so flexibility is a byword, but I, the, 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 the concern to go back to public confidence is that, you know, the public sees uh, methodologies being used in a very instrumental way sometimes or, mis or misperceives that. Uh, and that's the concern. Jeff? I, yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'd love to sit on a panel with uh, Diane and Ray. Uh, that would be, I don't think we'd have too much trouble. But let's not forget that disagreement's not always bad. The premise of appellate courts is there will be disagreement, that that's why you have multiple members, multiple perspectives, and the possibility of seeing a hard case like Bostic, where, by the way, Diane was affirmed. Um, you know, some people could see it slightly differently. And here you had, I think there were three textualist opinions at the court, all seeing textualism differently at ba in Bostic. But the one thing I just so strongly want to emphasize, because I think it is really hurtful, is this team's approach uh, to statutory and constitutional interpretation. It's just absurd. We all start with the words. I just don't think there's ever been a judge that doesn't care about the words. We start with the assumption the words have a fixed meaning. We look at the same background backdrop, and yes, Dan's right. If the word is unreasonable, it's going to leave a lot more room for debate, 
possibly evolution in some settings. Um, but I, I feel like both, all of these schools of thought, and I think we judges, frankly, could do a much better job on this. I mean, I have seen cases where people don't want to join an opinion because it mentions history. Well, there is no such thing as law without history, all right? You, you should be humble about it, but the idea that history is bad is just absurd. I mean, that is politicizing interpretation. I mean, we should be careful and say, it's not always going to give you a clear answer. But you know, I, I want to go back to, we have this obsession about methods of interpretation, which we did not have in the 70s when beloved Justice Powell went on the court. We have to ask ourselves, why is it that someone like Justice Powell with no track record, head of a law firm, head of the ABA could not get on the court today? And that is because the footprint of the court is sufficiently big to the Amer eyes of the American people. They're deciding enough issues they care about that they don't want to bet on a pragmatist wise individual. They want to bet on somebody either that they perceive as having an agenda similar to their political party, or this is quite unfortunate, hearing a term like textualism and originalism and thinking that means they'll have outcomes that they like, which we judges know is just not how it works. But there's only, there's only one way out of this, if you ask me. The footprint of the federal courts has got to get smaller. And, it, and of course, it can't be smaller in one direction. I take that to be the point Diane's making. That's not going to help us with credibility. That worsens it. I mean, if, if the footprint of the court shrinks only by unconstitutionalizing issues that Democrats care about, there's no way that ends well. So to me, there, there is only one path forward on this, and it is one that somehow has the court either doing less, which is very controversial because you have to pick the areas where you're gonna do less. And sometimes that includes undoing victories, or you, you go back to what I thought was the rule of the last 30 years, which was we give you yours and we'll give you theirs. In other words, we're, we're doing them in both directions. So the growth, honors both directions. Um, I don't see that happening right now with this court. And that might be why it's a little tricky, um, but I, I can't emphasize enough this team's approach to statutory and constitutional law. I'm, I'm just contemptuous of it. It's incredibly frustrating. And the intensity of the confirmation process, I fear, is leading some younger judges to think they've just been put on a team. And that's very hard to undo once they're on the court. I mean, that might be a five to 10 year effort to show, no, that's not how this works. Um, but that's where we are. You know, there's been some academic writing, which I think is consistent with what you just said, Jeff. Um, another Jeff, uh, Jeff Powell, my colleague at, at Duke, um, has written this article about uh, Judge, it's called Judges as Superheroes, The Danger of Confusing Constitutional Decision with Cosmic Battles. And he's disappointed uh, to find that appellate judges are attacking the legitimacy of the, of the other judges on the panel when they disagree. Uh, you know, that, well, we don't agree, and so I impugn your motives or I say that you are acting in a way that is not lawful or in some way illegitimate, rather than just focusing on what the 
what the difference of opinion is and trying to clarify it and, and actually trying to persuade one another. That's his, his main point, I think, actually, is that this kind of overheated rhetoric where I make an accusation against my somebody uh, who's on the other side as to their motivations or their intention, uh, then I'm trying to embarrass them or coerce them. I'm not actually trying to persuade them and that that's just not helpful. And I, I, and I think if you go deeper than that, I think what, what Jeff Powell is, is hoping is that in a time of division that the judiciary will have enough internal culture and professionalism that it will be not, not necessarily impervious, but it will be able to, um, its internal value system will be so strong that it won't, it won't break apart into, into teams. And, you know, it, two of you have been chief judges, so I think you, you've all been very aware of the collegiality of your courts. And, and I think, I take it that the reason that's important is for the very reasons that we're talking about is so that the court can do its job really well. Um, you know, how do we, how do we, how, how is it to be a judge in a, in a divisive time? I, I just like to put that out there. And then I have one more question for you and we'll call it a day. Can I just say as chief, I certainly tried hard to make sure that the rhetoric stayed cooled down. And I'll, I'll relate an anecdote when I was doing a moot court at Columbia a few months after Bush versus Gore had been handed down. And one of the other people on the moot court panel was Justice Breyer. And he very kindly did a town hall with all of the students at Columbia. It was just taking, you know, Justice Breyer could do this off the top of his head. He was taking all these questions. And one of the students said, and I'll paraphrase roughly, how can you go to work the next day with these people that you just finished writing such an impassioned dissent about? You know, is this consistent at all? And he gave the greatest answer. He said, look, I believe in every word of that dissent. That was that case. You have to put it away. These people I'm going to work with today and tomorrow and the next day. And every case is a new case. Now, whether we all think he achieved, you know, exactly what you're talking about, just the merits in that dissent isn't my point. It's just that when I write dissents anyway, I try godfather-like, you know, to keep it business, you know, not personal. If I don't agree, I need to have a reason and I need to be able to put the reason down in some way that, uh, you know, a, a well-informed legal reader could understand what it was. If I can't do that, I shouldn't even write the dissent. And the last thing in the world I wanna do is write a dissent that's going to antagonize a colleague who I might want to persuade to join me tomorrow. And in fact, over 27 years on the Seventh Circuit, so many times, you know, I, I couldn't even count the number of times I have thought I knew exactly what Judge X was gonna do, but I gave it a shot anyway. I figured you never know. And Judge X would surprise me. Judge X would be open to, to something. So I think that's important. The other thing I'll just put in a huge plug for is at the Supreme Court level, just like at our level, if you can write opinions somewhat more narrowly, if you can do what the Supreme Court did during the term that it had only eight people while the vacancy was unfilled, they actually got a lot done. And they narrowed things. They found ways of getting along together. So they proved that they can do it if they need to. Jeff? Well, I just wanted to add, um, 
I'm going to invoke not the Godfather, but a sound of music and the nun statement at the end uh, Father, I have sinned after pulling out the spark plug of the Nazis' police car. Um, so I, I've written some um, dissents that I probably are, are stronger than, you know, I just haven't held the line. I mean, I'm, I think by and large, I'm pretty good at the tone issue, but I, I ask myself, why? why? Why do I make that mistake? And, you know, there's the vanity kind of human foibles problem. I do think it hurts us a little bit that, you know, when I came of age in the law, there was like four people covering the courts. It was it. I mean, and it, really two major ones, Linda Greenhouse and Nina Totenberg. And, you know, now it's, I think the temptation has grown. I'd like to think I'm resisting it for the most part, but I do think just everything being covered and wanting your opinion quoted and mentioned in this blog or that blog is, is you know, I don't want to blame the press because it's our fault, but I am trying to figure out in my own head why it's, why there's more of it. Cause I do think it's hurtful. And I, I quite agree with you that we're writing a lot of overwrought opinions. And, um, you know, I, I, I acknowledged at the outset that I've done it myself a few times, but I, I think it's a good topic for we judges and probably not, a, you know, we asked, David was asking us, you know, about our role in this. And if we think that there's a lot of pressure on the U S Supreme court, maybe, <laughs> Maybe we can really help them, right? Find a way to do a narrow ground, make a 3-0 decision that doesn't require cert, that tamps down the, the really strong uh, dissent. Um, so I, I do wonder if we couldn't help a little bit here. And so Diane, I agree with you 100%, even though I haven't always followed it. <laughs> Ray? No, I, I am an incrementalist, so I agree. <laughs> My <laughs> Two colleagues, um, I think that narrow decisions help, uh, unanimity helps uh, tamp down the temperature. Um, I think that peer pressure helps. What I've noticed, particularly in the context of in banks, is when other colleagues, particularly senior colleagues, uh, call um, uh, and, and just say, you might wanna um, take out a few words or sentences. Um, that uh, you thought inviting your dissent or whatever it was uh, were, were superb sentences. Um, and I, you know, there are so many, at least uh, on the second circuit and I take it that it's in other circuits, there's so many new judges, right? There, this is a real opportunity to reinforce the message about collegiality. This is of course not a new problem Harry Edwards, I know, um, on the DC circuit <laughs> has written about it, talked about it, uh, um, and it's, it was not unique to the DC circuit. Uh, other, every circuit has had these issues, um, but it's worth revisiting and um, you know, being a little concerned about uh, and making sure the judges are aware that language matters. The word choices matters with respect to their colleagues and I agree you know I, I always say to my law clerks Stan move forward <laughs> move forward um, uh, and uh, as Justice Breyer apparently said um, you know tomorrow's uh, another day uh, and you'll have to deal with your colleagues um, and so one, that's so great I didn't mean to cut you off right were you well, just to stay with you, Ray, I know all of you, um, this is my last question. Do you have, um, all of you do so much work in the civic education space. You, you go into 
high school classrooms. You probably have grammar students occasionally. Uh, you talk to law students. You talk to neighbors and friends. And some of them, predictably, will be very upset with uh, with decisions from time to time. Um, if you have a wide uh, group of acquaintances, they may, they won't agree <laughs> on which cases they're most upset about, but they will be really upset. And they're hearing this drumbeat from the media and from some of our political leadership, that, you know, that the court is just a political body. That's what it is. It's a, it's a partisan body. And, and as Diane and others of you have said, you know, the confirmation process tends to, is not, not showing America at its best. So do you have a, like a little elevator speech that you give when uh, students say, gee, isn't, isn't this just politics by another name? And, uh, you know, uh, I don't see why I should pay much respect to, uh, to, the, to nine people, Ray? I, I, I do, I do. Um, you know, as, as you know, David, actually, I spoke to a number of high school students at uh, very different backgrounds in New Mexico uh, as part of what I would describe as a civic education program that Roberta uh, Ramo um, uh, really spearheaded there. It's fantastic. Uh, and I, I was astounded. I was stunned. I may have talked to you about this. Uh, by the number of times that these 14 to 18 year old uh, kids, high school students expressed the view that judges were really nothing more than purely political actors uh, whose decisions were uh, entirely political. And I, I, was, I was very surprised. And what I tried to do, I don't know that it worked. I don't know that it disabused them uh, of these, uh, these notions that I gather they got from um, the media, from uh, uh, the confirmation process and so on. But what I try to do is ex just explain what I do, explain what my colleagues do, explain how I do my job every day. Uh, and as uh, Diane um, and Jeff uh, both pointed out, um, I tell them how often we're unanimous in our decisions despite very different viewpoints. Um, and that's the best that I think we can do. I also encourage people to go see an actual court proceeding, right? Go to court, federal court, state court, local court, who care, to see um, how uh, it operates. See, frankly, how in, in many ways, uh, with great respect for litigants in each case, how mundane it is. Uh, and, um, and then they'll appreciate uh, the, the, really the majesty of what it is that we do and the fact that we've been able to do it um, so well uh, in a way that has, until now, preserved uh, the rule of law. That's, that's the best that I can do. I think that that is part of the civic education program that we're all uh, engaged in, uh, that I hope uh, and pray more people uh, engage in. Um, but it's, it was quite a surprise to me. Um, I do think having students come to the courthouses and watch oral argument and meet with judges helps. Um, but civic education is the important pillar of any effort to reverse this, uh, this trend. Thank you. Jeff? Well, I, I, um, I definitely make the point that's been made by Ray and Diane that um, if we were blue-robed and red-robed judges, how is it we would agree and 
90% of our cases or 97% or de depending on what the circuit is. So that's helpful. I usually, I've, I've, in my old age, I've gotten to personalizing it by saying, um, in my two biggest cases, I must've been given the wrong robe because I ruled opposite my policy preferences in the two biggest cases I've had. So you would think if ever there were a time for your redness or blueness to come through, it'd be the, the big cases. So I point that out. The third thing I point out, uh, obviously this last one at law schools and in front of lawyers, I really believe on this point, this is not just our job. In fact, I don't think it's mainly our job. This is the job of lawyers. I mean, it's hopeful, you know, and I can't tell you exactly what the language is, but he, he's making the point, democracy of America, that lawyers have a really big role in American government. And I feel like lawyers, we lawyers could do a better job explaining how the system works and explaining what are legitimate um, points of debate about a decision and what's not legitimate. And that, you know, we're just not doing as good a job as we could explaining to our neighbors and the people in our community how this works. And so I, I you know, if we're relying on judges to get this message out, it ain't gonna work. They're not enough of us. Lawyers, by contrast, I think understand this. They know what it's like to lose. They know what it's like to lose legitimately in a reasonable setting. And they're in a position to explain this. So I, I really would like to see the lawyers really emphasizing the point. That's a great point. Diane? Yes, uh, the only thing I'll add to all of those great points is that when I'm in that situation, as I was earlier this year with a rule of law program in Chicago that had quite a few high school students attending it. As I try to keep it pretty specific, I try to say, you know, what, what are you worried about? You know, you worried about the gun case, you worried about abortion, because the press tends to run these sky is falling, world is coming to an end headlines. And I'm very often to, able to say, let's, be specific. What did the court say here? Well, take Dobbs. You know, they said this goes back to the legislatures and to the people. So I say, if you want to feel empowered, the court didn't shut you off, but you, as soon as you're able to do it, should register to vote, should make your voice heard. There are many, many court decisions that operate inside statutes where there's actually a pretty straight line between individual action and the ability to affect the system. Not so for all constitutional things, but if you tell them, let's stop for a minute, take a deep breath and break it down, it becomes more manageable. And I think they wind up feeling empowered to do something about it. Thank you all uh, so much. I, I, I hope that this podcast is listened to by millions and billions of people because we've had you know three of our finest judges and you've all been so thoughtful it, it it renews certainly my confidence in the in a system that attracts such talent and uh, genuinely nice and thoughtful people uh, i cannot thank you enough and um, i will say goodbye to our listeners i'm david levy and i'm President of the American Law Institute and Director of the Volch Judicial Institute and uh, Judge Sutton, Judge Loyer and 
Judge Wood, thank you so very much for what you do every day in your, in your work and for being with us here today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Reasonably Speaking. Visit ALI.org to learn about this important topic and our speakers. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Reasonably Speaking is produced by the American Law Institute with audio engineering by Kathleen Morton, digital editing by Sarah Ferrero, and I'm Graham Lucas.